Hello, and welcome to the Measure Up Podcast, a show dedicated to helping marketers and analytics professionals know what's working, what's not, and how to measure it all. Join me, Jim Genolio, and my co-host, Simon Polden, as we talk to people just like you who are dealing with the marketing measurement challenges in today's world and learn best practices, tips, and actionable advice. Hey, Simon. Hey, Jim. What's up? Not a whole lot. Welcome back. It's good yeah. to see you again. Oh, it's great. It's great to be here. This is what, our fourth one together? It's, pre- it's pretty uh, pretty fun. Yeah, fourth one. Uh, hey, do you, do you remember when the uh, the Harvard Business Review declared that data science was the sexiest job of the 21st century? I do. I wonder if that's correlated with your entrance into the world of data science. You know, I used to think that. Um, yeah. But uh, I actually got into it even later than that. So, <laughs> but I remember that was always in my mind, like, oh, yeah. this is a sexy job. So yeah. I should probably go into it to, you know, just be there. Absolutely. But you know what? It was actually, it was actually 11 years ago. Oh my gosh. 11 uh, years ago when it's uh, came out with that article. Yeah. And, you know, over the past decade, not surprisingly, uh, you know, there's been a flood of interest in data science as a career with universities now offering both formal programs and, and graduate and undergraduate programs. And, you know, with this increased interest also comes increased competition uh, with more people out there, you know, getting, uh, getting degrees in analytics and data science and, um, you know, coming out of school right away with, with all that, uh, with that education and kind of the level playing field for everyone. Um, today's candidates need to really step up their game to uh, get these coveted jobs. So today's guest is going to help us shed some light on this process and hopefully help any listeners trying to break into the data science space get a leg up. Leandra Gonzalez is a senior data and applied scientist at Microsoft. She's no stranger to data or education with a master's degree from Carnegie Mellon University, an MBA from the Quantic School of Business and Technology, and a PhD candidate focusing on information technology with a focus on generative AI and information governance. (sighs) Deep breath. Leandra brings valuable perspective on this topic. She's also managed analytics and data science teams for agencies including Saatchi and Saatchi, Quigley Simpson, and WPromote, and is in the process of writing a book on interviewing for data science roles. Welcome to the show, Leandra. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So the main theme for this episode is breaking into the data science space. And we're going to talk about the importance of mentorship, tips for interviewing, how to get that first data science role or transition into it from a marketing or analytics role. But before we dive right into that, Leandra, can you talk a little bit about how you got to where you are and about the work that you're doing at Microsoft? Absolutely. So um, thanks for having me. I'll try to keep the story short because it's actually kind of long naturally. Um, But essentially, I was always into math. I loved physics. That was probably my favorite um, subject in high school. Um, But no one around me, either in my family or in my community, was really engaged in technology or STEM degrees in general. So it didn't really appeal to me to major in like statistics or math or physics. Um, Everyone I knew majored in something more like business, marketing, communications, or perhaps some of the liberal arts. So I ended up majoring in music and business in my undergraduate. Um, It was sort of a compromise with my parents, like, okay, you want to major in music, 
that's fine, but like have a backup plan. And I'm really glad that they recommended that to me. So smart of them. Yes. <laughs> so smart of them, right? <laughs> um, so I, I did that. And um, as a result of that, I actually did an internship at the Ohio Department of Insurance because at the time I was kind of interested in actuary work, um, but it still wasn't something that seemed achievable for me. And I don't know why that was. I think it's just because I never looked at it as an option. And so that exposed me to, you know, like Excel, SQL, data mining in general. And because of that interest, sort of mixed with my interest in music, I decided, okay, maybe I'll just go into the music business. That sounds like something that is a good mix between the two. So I applied to this program at Carnegie Mellon and it's an entertainment industry management program, which is kind of like an MBA in entertainment essentially, but it's based in their information systems management school for some really random reason. <laughs> and I'm really lucky that it was, but as a result of being based in that school, you have to take all these quant classes. So you have to take uh, applied econ, you have to take statistics, um, probability, database administration. And so that kind of gave me more of a foundation of um, technology and mathematics. And at the same time, it exposed me to other majors who were going for the more quant roles. And when it comes to applying to summer internships, I'm over here trying to get like, hopefully minimum wage internships at like NBC, Sony, um, all the big tech or all the big uh, entertainment companies, right? Um, meanwhile, a lot of my peers who, honestly, I did better than some of them in the stats class, they're like going for IBM, they're going for Amazon, they're going for Microsoft, and they're getting paid like $60 an hour for an internship. And from where I'm from, that's a good paying job, let alone- I think it's a good paying job for most people in the world, to be quite yes. honest. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So that's when I kind of realized that maybe I was in the wrong major. <laughs> so that's when I ultimately made a pivot. Um, I graduated from my program, but I ended up getting jobs in like financial analysis, data analyst, because those were the ones that A, tended to pay more, and B, at the time, at least, they were less competitive than more entertainment roles because everyone wants to work in entertainment and they will pay you like nothing to do it and people will be happy about it. So um, that's kind of how I made my transition. I ended up doing the MBA a little later on when I wanted to be more general than just entertainment. I kind of wanted to brand myself outside of that. Um, but I ended up sort of going into advertising because it felt kind of almost adjacent to entertainment. And so I felt like I was able to pitch myself really well to advertising. Um, and then, you know, I just kept learning and I ended up doing a PhD because I'm always learning anyways. So I decided why not get a degree while I'm at it, you know, might as well. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I love um, that. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's funny. So we didn't actually talk about this uh, during the sort of pre-recording or any of that, but um, I think I went into CMU right after you in the same same school, the uh, Heinz. So I was in the Masters of Science of Information Technology, the the part time uh, program, right. whereas you were in the full time nice. program. Um, and I was the the business intelligence and data analytics uh, was the the focus. Uh, yeah, so we, you know, we probably had a lot of the same classes and, and same yeah. professors. And 
great, uh, great program though. Yeah. That's I mean, cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> and, and also, I think that, uh, this happens all the time, and it makes you realize how real, how tiny our industry is, or how tiny our yes. space is. Is like, you know, the fact that you you hadn't met before. Um, re- obviously, um, for folks listening, I actually I've known Leona for years, um, and I'm really excited to be talking about interviewing with her because she had interviewed with me, and I hired her when we were working at W Promote together. Um, and, and and as you know, part of that, I, I had that background there. But just knowing the fact that you two have this connection uh, <laughs> in this in this world that we think of as so big um, <laughs> is really uh, 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 I don't know, quite uh, humbling in, in terms of just how how small and tight our industry still is. In terms of uh, you know, it's always like what three degrees of yeah, yeah two degrees of Jim Giannolio, as I call it. <laughs> uh, love it, awesome. Uh, well, with, with that, um, I'd love to uh, maybe just tap in there and, you know, your background is is interesting and it's one that um, you've really, um, I don't know if if, if you would uh, frame it as this, but, you know, it doesn't sound like you had this like roadmap all planned out, right? There were, or maybe you did have a roadmap, but there were just a lot of detours on the way and eventually you yeah. actually, you end up making a secondary map. And so you end up, <laughs> you know, you, you're all the way over here and you're like, that's not the, that's not the destination. Um, yeah. But I think one of the the, the challenging or, or one of the, the elements of that is you must have met people along the way who helped guide you on that journey. And you talked about, you know, you thought maybe you wanted to be an actuary. And um, I don't, I'll say, I don't think most people know anyone who's an actuary. My cousin is an actuary, um, but it is such a rare job. Like I had yeah. no idea what it was when he was going for it. And then I looked it up and I was like, Wow, so you got to go to school for four years, and then it takes seven years to get your certification. Yes. So the access to an actuary role is incredibly hard, and yes. you know, no, no one really knows folks in that space. So, how did you go about meeting the, or, or who, who were the ones who were giving the, the people in your life that were helping guide you on this journey? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when it comes to the actuary bit specifically, I think literally one day I was just like how does insurance work? Like, I think I just had that thought. Yeah. Um, and I asked my mom and she was like, uh, I guess they just like, they do some calculations and stuff. And I was like, that sounds kind of cool. So I was looking to see if there were any internships in Columbus, Ohio, which is where I'm from. And the Ohio Department of Insurance, they actually didn't even have a formal internship program. They were kind of shocked that I even wanted to intern there. <laughs> Um, and so I just ended up being this kid that showed up like three times a week. And, um, one of the actuaries there, I don't know if he's still there or not, but I remember his name was John. He was so open to just like telling me about the job, what it entailed, all those like exams they have to take, um, how rigorous they are, um, and kind of how they calculate premiums and things like that. So I think experiencing that firsthand with someone otherwise I wouldn't have, you know, come across was really eye-opening to me. And that's when I first realized maybe this is something that I could kind of fit into. Um, So that's how I kind of got introduced to actuarial science. But in terms of analytics or STEM or tech in general, there were definitely numerous people along the way who were either informal mentors or just folks that I ended up looking up to. Um, There's this woman at Netflix. I bring her up in almost like all my interviews because she truly was extremely like influential in me staying in tech. Because I almost quit one time. I was like, okay, maybe I don't belong here. 
Um, her name is Jen. And I met her at a data science conference. And I was the only person that kind of looked looked like me there. Um, and I just felt like it was hard for me to network because it felt like no one approached me. But she was the only one that did. And she actually gave a presentation that day. And so she just really left a positive influence on me. She invited me over to Netflix. I didn't even ask. She was just like, do you want to come to Netflix, have lunch with me? I was like, That's sure. Awesome. Yeah, she's awesome. And I, I still keep in contact with her. This happened years ago. This was before, before even dubbing Promote, Simon. And yeah. um, if it weren't for her, honestly, I probably still would not be in tech. Wow. So there's numerous people like that. Believe it or yeah. not, Simon, even... Uh, if you remember Ragoff. At, yeah, of uh, course. I, I love Ragoff. Ragoff was so amazing. He was he was so inspiring for me. Yeah. He was because he's just like a brilliant guy, but he's super humble and he explains things very easily. So folks like that were just always really they had a huge impact on yeah. my like my self-esteem as well as my interest in the in the tech world. So it sounds like maybe just to, to to frame it up there, it sounds like the way to go about finding these folks to become mentors and to become the, the, these guiding points in, in your career is to put yourself out there. And and so the the big question is, you know, in this modern era, in the uh, I guess the post pandemic world that we're in, a lot of things have gone virtual. And so a lot of those maybe um, organic touch points don't necessarily exist for folks anymore. So how, you know, if, if you're speaking with a new grad, how would you, what advice would you give them on going and finding somebody who is a, who's a mentor like that in the space? That's an excellent question because you're totally right. After the pandemic, it did become a little bit more difficult. Yeah. I remember before the pandemic, I was always going to all these meetups, all these like tech groups where people were just like coding together or they're having a presentation on something. After that, it became very difficult to find those in-person connections. Um, so I think for folks who are either early in their career or maybe they're still in school, I think it's important to take advantage or rather form relationships with people who are in your immediate circle and then try to expand that circle by saying, would you recommend someone that I speak to um, perhaps who aren't already in your circle? Um, or going to your alumni association. That's something I did a lot um, where I would meet folks, maybe like Jim, you know, if I, if I came across him, um, just to be able to formulate these relationships. And then, of course, now online, you have places like Discord and Slack where you can join these different servers and you can meet folks from all over the world who kind of do this. So I would say just be resourceful, like you said. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, which... I mean, are there any specific communities on Slack that you think folks should be going out and finding? Uh, well, I actually, I joined like the Pi, there's like a um, Pi Ladies and there's also an R Ladies one as well. Um, so if you're like into a specific programming languages, there tend to be communities around that. Sure. Even like Power BI or like Tableau, there's communities around that as well. Um, and then if you're part of any like online boot camps like Data Camp or Code Academy or something, they almost always have communities of like thousands of people in a Slack channel or a Discord channel somewhere. So yeah, I would just say look online, look at the, you know, back in the day, you remember back in the day with like MySpace where they used to have like those chat channel things. 
we don't really have that anymore, but we do have like Discord and Slack. And I think you can kind of leverage them in a similar fashion. I'd like to have like a, a top eight of data scientists on my my LinkedIn profile that I could just be reordering all the time and just like let, let people know. Yeah, like, like this, this is where they are in my ranking. Uh, just <laughs> no, Tom is number one, and then after that is Keandra, and then <laughs> uh, love it. How do you think about so, like, you know, with it getting harder to to sort of find mentors, sort of uh, organically in the workplace, right? A lot of jobs are remote now, right? And that's yeah. been a big. Um, there's been a lot of discussion around that, around like junior uh, junior folks mm. having a harder time advancing because they don't have that face-to-face time with their boss and and all the issues that that introduces. But, yes. you know, with, with less of that sort of in-person, in-office, you know, like randomly, like, oh, I met this person, this this manager in another department and they're meant, you know, they're, they're helping me. You know, like you mentioned the, the Slack channels and, and places to find, you know, people. But, um, in terms of like, I'm thinking about it in terms of like official mentorship, like, oh, mm. there's this mentorship program and I get connected with this person and they help me with th- these three things. And we have this regular cadence um, um, versus, hey, I just, you know, I chatted with this. I reached out to this person on LinkedIn and yeah. and asked if they would chat and we did. And then we maybe talk every once in a while. Mm. Like, you know, mentorship could take a lot of different flavors, right? So what do you think in terms of you know, do you need that sort of official mentorship or is it even more, could it be more beneficial just to like reach out to someone and say, Hey, do you mind talking about this? Yeah. You know, Jim, it's a little bit of both. I think that for folks who are more introverted, like myself, I'm kind of more on the introverted side. It may be beneficial to start out with a more formal program where you're paired with a mentor or two, and then you have these regular weekly sessions. And then maybe after that program is over, you kind of take it upon yourself to keep in touch with that person. Um, I think those are great for folks who don't really come naturally. It doesn't come naturally to them to, to maintain relationships. But I also think that at least for me, some of the best mentors that I've obtained were not through like a formal program. It was actually just folks that I I worked with, I knew them, and they might not even know that I consider them a mentor, actually. Mm -hmm. It's more this organic relationship that we just have, and I just really value their opinion on career development or science. And so I think those are actually the stronger relationships when you're able to like, organically connect with someone, and then you just kind of really value their, their thoughts. And, and there's some, I think there's some really interesting head trash there for leaders, um, especially in the measurement space where maybe there are some more introverted leaders who, you know, th- there becomes this question of <sighs> when do you consider yourself to be a mentor? And, and and that's such a, a strange, it is an odd moment. Like there was, there was never a point in my career where I thought, I now know enough to be a mentor. Yeah. I'm going to go out there and offer my services, the Oracle of, of, of analytics, and, and I'll be that guy. Um, but people do come to me and they do ask, you know, and, and so over time, I sort of organically realized that. But I think that's a really salient point that this idea of having like a, a mentor or being a mentee, that is never or if you put it in a box and you say it has to be this formal thing, you'll miss out on so many of these opportunities that 
you may already have a mentor. You're just not, you just haven't realized it. And the reality is you just have to put the time and energy into making that relationship flourish. Exactly. A hundred percent. I agree. Um, and I think that similarly to you, Simon, I think I've ended up in a similar situation where I find out later on that folks kind of really value my thoughts and my opinion. And I'm like, wow, I didn't really consider myself a mentor. I just mm. consider myself like a lending hand, someone who cares and who wants to see you succeed. Yeah. Yeah, a- absolutely. Well, that, so obviously, um, you know, finding folks in the industry is important. It's a challenge. I think part of what we're talking about here is, um, you know, it, it, it takes two to tango and that uh, folks have to put themselves out there, but also people who are leaders in the industry need to make a bit of space and, and make themselves available and, you know, go and talk at colleges and those kind of things. But once you've got that opportunity, you know, you, you, you've got the at bat, right? Like, uh, like you said, you, you, you invited for lunch at Netflix. That's awesome. Well, that turns into an interview, let's say. Um, this is what you're writing a book about, right? It's interviewing. So interviewing for data science roles in particular is kind of unique, I think, from from yeah. a lot of industries in that there are both IQ and EQ elements built in mm-hmm. here. So um, I guess talk us through your what what does the optimal interview look like? What what should folks be doing when they when they go into a data science interview? Yeah, man, that is so tough because like every data science interview I've been in has been completely different. It's like okay. such a dice roll. Some people are like, just talk me through how like Bayesian statistics work. You have another place that's like, I need you to write this algorithm in Python to show me how to accomplish something. You've got other places that are like, here's a take home assignment. In a lot of cases, you just don't know what you're actually going to encounter. It's very much like a blind test. Mm. And what's so challenging about data science is that it's there's so it's such a vast topic. Um, it feels almost impossible to like nail absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that I, I think that it's becoming more public that perhaps the data science interview is not the most optimal. I think folks are kind of aligning on that um, on that opinion, but I also still feel like there's space to recognize that not everyone is strong at everything, um, and that's okay. And so, what I aim to do with this book, which, by the way, I'm co-authoring, I brought on a co-author. He uh, also works for Microsoft. His name's Aaron. Shout out to Aaron. Nice. Um, what we aim to do with the book was. Focus more on the fundamentals because ultimately everything you're interviewed on typically goes back to the fundamentals. It's not as common where they'll ask you a super like niche specific question unless the role really hones in on that specific thing. But otherwise, it's going to be like, uh, what are the metrics the metrics associated with the confusion matrix? Like these are going to be very common questions. And so we're trying to create a space where folks can brush up on these things if they've already learned it, but they forgot the name of it. Like, I forgot what recall versus precision is, you know? Oh, my God. I could never get that straight. Oh, my God. Like, seriously. (laughs) Always have to look it up. Always. I still have to look it up all the time. And so, and you're not alone. People don't memorize these things a lot of the times. So... That's what we try to do. We're trying to make it accessible to brush up on these things or to learn these things. And then you can expand upon it if you want. But just knowing the basics of Python, the basics of SQL, 
get um, command line statistics. These things will get you very far. You just got to interview like everyone else, prepare as much as possible. And that's just, that's kind of the gig. Yeah, and if, if, if someone finds themselves in an interview where, you know, they're being asked a lot of like specific questions where maybe it wasn't up, it wasn't clear up front from the, the description of the role that they would need to know this very specific nuanced algorithm for doing whatever. Yeah. Um, what would you like, how would you tell people to pre not, not necessarily prepare for that, but like if they find themselves in that situation and they're mm -hmm. asked a question, like how do you, how do you answer those hard questions in an interview where you'd like, you just don't know? Absolutely. Um, I can give you my take on it. I don't know what anyone else will say. But what works for me generally is, A, don't panic <laughs> because it's normal to not know something. Um, and depending on the hiring manager or the person you're speaking with, they might actually, I would say, I would go even further and say they will likely value your honesty in that you don't know something. Um, so don't 100%. try to like, yeah, like don't pick it up on the fly. Don't try to pretend like you know it. S try to like talk them through it, talk them through what you do know, seem curious, ask questions. You can maybe even work out the question with them. Um, and if, if it's like a coding thing, for sure, always be communicative with them. Say, this is, this is what I'm stuck on. This is what I'm like, I'm trying to figure out. And they usually give you like clues or they kind of lead you along. So I think that's the most valuable thing to do. Don't just tap out and say, I have no clue or can I Google it? <laughs> <laughs> Don't just tap out because they they know that you can Google these things. Everyone. Right. So. Yeah, there's a difference between saying, oh, I don't know. Next question. Yeah. <laughs> and like... Well, that's interesting. I, I don't know that specific question, but here's how I would go about trying to answer it, or here's how I would learn the answer if I was yes. in that situation in a job. And yeah, talking through your thought process, and you know, that's that's hugely valuable. That there's yes. no worse. I, I, I've I used to be on the the hiring side and, and interviewing a uh, couple of years, number of years ago, and um, the the worst look on an interviewee is to try to make it up on the fly. Yeah, it's like because you know the person who's interviewing you. They, they know the, the quote unquote right answer. Yeah. And if you don't know it and you're trying to like fake it, it's, it looks terrible. Yeah. It's just, but I think yeah. a lot of junior folks do try and fake it. Yeah. And, and that is possibly because there's this just, look, if I don't get this answer right, I've lost it either way. So I can either mm -hmm. fake it and, you know, there's a one in a hundred shot I get it right. Or I can, I can say, I don't know. And there's a zero in 100% chance that one you know i don't know is the answer <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's it's an interesting that, um that's the thing though, yeah I, I mean that's the thing though i would often ask people questions that you know based on like their earlier responses i kind of had a pretty good sense that they, they're not going to know this answer and i would ask it to see I, I would try to like get them to say i don't know because yeah. like if they can say that if they can admit that they don't know something like especially in the consulting world like that mm -hmm. is you have to be able to admit when you don't know something yeah, it's, it is tough in an interview situation because a lot of people it are trained. You have to know. You have to give an answer. You have to like. I would love to break people of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's so tough. It it's even more complicated because you know everyone who's going to interview is vastly different as well. There are some folks who would appreciate more you just saying like, "This is how I'm thinking about it," 
but you will also have interview managers who maybe want the exact answer. There's even, there's even like hiring managers or interviewers who not only want the correct answer, but they, they don't want a correct answer. They want the correct answer that they have in mind. And if you don't perform that one, then, then you is basically getting a zero on the assignment. So there's all sorts of different styles to interviewing. Um, but I, I personally think that that experience is sort of like a preview to what you're going to get on the job, you know? So it's also about matchmaking for you as well. Is this the kind of environment you want to be in? Yeah. Well, I think, and I think that is the really hard for a lot of folks who are looking to get their first job in, in, in the space is, um, as much as we have this sort of privilege of being able to say like, well, I like to pick and choose where I work and, and I'm going to pick exactly who I want to work with. And, you know, it's going to be on my terms and all these things that comes with the fact that, you know, we all have significant tenured experience and all these other things. So there is a degree of demand right there, yeah. there, but with these, with these younger, uh, with these newer grads, like they don't have that background. And so maybe they're only getting yeah. one or two at bats. And so that, that is an interesting situation. And I, and I wonder if, um, I guess w- w- for a lot of folks listening to this, some of them may be new grads, but I think many of them would be folks who perhaps are the hiring manager who are sitting on that side of the table. What advice would you give them on conducting measurement interviews in, in terms of really finding the right candidates? Because mm. a lot of times you can frame questions in ways that, yeah, you get certain answers, but I don't know if that person's actually going to be very good at this job just because they yeah. can tell me this answer. They may just have a really good memory and then yeah. they have no creativity in their body, right? There's, there's <laughs> a lot of these balancing factors. So how, how would you say managers should, should approach this? Hey, it's Jim here with Quick Aside. If you're listening to this episode and enjoying it, I've got to tell you about the Mix It Up newsletter from MMM Hub. It's a free newsletter that provides resources on how to effectively measure your marketing. It includes helpful tutorials, cutting-edge tools, and relevant articles so readers can make smarter decisions with their marketing dollars. You can sign up today at mmmhub.org. Now back to the show. How, how would you say managers should, should approach this? Man, that is like, that's a brilliant question because personally, I think that every hiring manager should go into the interview process as they should have the mentality that they're looking for someone who meets a certain set of skills, like taken, have a certain set of skills. Um, but it's not, it doesn't mean they have to be brilliant at everything. And you also have to remember that there's got to be some room for growth as well. Sometimes hiring managers are just looking for someone who's going to fill a role and who's content with that role and who's going to stay there. And that's fine if that's what you're looking for. But usually what I look for and what I notice other hiring managers who seem to be doing a great job, what they do is they're looking for someone who has growth, who has the potential. They might not be an exact match. Um, That rarely exists anyway. Um, And to have a a well-balanced criteria, like you said, Simon, there is a bit of creativity involved in the job. Sometimes it's not all about how amazing you can code. Um, now it's great if you can code amazing, but if you also don't know how to solve problems that that don't already have like a predetermined uh, solution, 
that's going to be really challenging for that person. Even if you have a PhD in something, if you don't know how to approach problems, quote unquote, outside of the box, you might not be a very good fit. So I would say, and also, by the way, for HR, like hiring folks, try not to throw every technology in the job description, like, especially if they're not used, you know, like, just be honest with what you actually need. Yeah, you can't include, you know, must have 10 years of experience with large language models. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> awesome. Um, so, yeah, no, it's a, uh, it is an interesting um, challenge on, 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 on both sides. Um, for me personally, the, the, I guess the way that I've always really uh, like to approach it is to, to find that balance by basically going about it of having a panel of your peers, meaning you find uh, folks in the, in the organization who are maybe of a similar level to this individual that you're interviewing them uh, and then have them just be, just have a, have a conversation. And one, you use that to, you know, upskill your people internally to be like, you know, interviews aren't scary. They're just conversations and use that to basically, you know, try and try and try and gather um, a degree of uh, comfort with this process and just see like, how would you operate in a day-to-day environment here? Like stop, you don't worry about impressing me as a, as the hiring manager. Like Mm -hmm. you just, how, how would you address your peers? Cause that's what the day-to-day is going to look like. And then from there, I also like to provide folks with the opportunity to, to, to come in and share a guided presentation because I find oftentimes that the the bar the barrier to entry is the the technical skills and if we if we feel confident that this person ha- has the technical skills then the biggest uh, gap often is can they present and storytell about the analysis that, that that they have performed can they explain it can they you know t- to an audience that maybe doesn't know what they're talking about because that's yeah. always the the biggest challenge is like you can do all these cool data science things but then you go to other folks in the organization and they have no idea what you're talking about but that's such a fundamental important element of of what it means to be a data scientist in the modern era absolutely i i, I love that too i love the presentation approach because it kind of gives you all of the tests in one a little bit like yeah. how do you communicate do you know what you're talking about yep. um do you know how to handle questions things like that yeah well it's a real life simulation yeah, the closest you can get to what the real life and the real world of this role looks like, the better. Otherwise, yeah. it's just rote memory. That's why I don't like standardized testing because I'm like, there's nothing in my life that it, in the professional <laughs> world, I've never done the equivalent of a standardized test. Is right. a client that comes in is like, check one of these four options, and I'm just like, no, everything <laughs> is like open book, free form response. You know, like it, it's I have time to research, I have time to do these things. So, it is interesting. Jim, was there anything else you want to dive into on the on the interviewing side? I'm curious because you you brought this up. I think Simon, um, a, like a take home test, like take home test or take home project yeah. kind of thing. I know there's this can be a polarizing topic. Um, you know, some companies will do it, and people say, "Well, you you're just getting free work out of them," and other people say, "Well, no." You know, I've seen cases where companies will pay them for like doing work on a take home project, just wow, so that they're not you know getting you know getting the hate for trying to get free work out of people. Um, so, but in my mind, I think that's probably one of the best ways to understand, can they do the job? Right. And like, like to, to Simon, to your point, like, you know, we shouldn't spend so much time on the like understanding if the client has the, the lowest barrier to entry skills to do the thing and more on the, can they communicate? Are they a good fit? Uh, th- those kind of things. But like, y- they have to be able to do the thing too. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I found you know the take take home projects or tests or whatever it might be tend to 
do pretty well at that. Uh, what, what do you think, uh, Leandra? Yeah, it is kind of a polarizing thing, but I think that's just because it's it has been taken advantage of. There are companies that are literally sending you a project that they're working on, basically. Um, but I think it's usually kind of obvious when that's the case and when they're actually just asking you to do something very simple, very hypothetical. Um, so as long as it's not something that's going to take five hours, you know, like literal time that you could be used elsewhere, uh, especially when you're doing like three or four of them, you know, I think they should keep in mind that this is still an interview, you know, they're not doing the job, hmm. but you want to get an, a sense of how they would approach problems that you encounter at the job. Just, just make it fair, you know, make it a sample yeah. of what they should expect, but don't actually give them something that you're going to take wholesale and then like go put it in production or something. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and try to find like little bite-sized pieces, like something that would take no more than one or two hours and, yeah. and that, or that you would expect would take no more than one or two hours. And, right. You know, hopefully they're able to like not have to like do an, pull an all nighter to, to complete it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, gosh, it's, it's interesting though because, Especially for hiring managers, as you go through these these, these moments in time, um, I think one of the things you do find is that y you often end up with a very homogenous candidate pool, and it's a it, this is a hard subject to 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 talk about. I remember well when we were at WMR, obviously during the the the, the Black Lives Matter, um, the the summer of Black Lives Matter, we mm -hmm. did have a lot of internal conversations, and we had a lot of moments where we, we all had very open very real conversations uh and, and i think it was a very good cathartic moment and, and it was it was a time where we all were very open and vulnerable about the lack of diversity in our in our industry and you know you you as a hiring manager can do everything right in terms of making this uh experience putting yourself out there being very open to finding a diverse pool of candidates and you still end up with a team of five white men and yeah. that is, I think, where I'd love to take this conversation and and really just learn from you. You know, you said earlier that you were at this event and then and no one else looked like you. And and, and I'd love to get um, your thoughts on what, why are we where we are right now? Right, like it, it's has d does the industry care about this? Do you feel yeah. like something has changed after that summer, or or not really? Oh man, how much time you got? <laughs> <laughs> This is like a this is like one of those things that you know folks could write series of books on or something. Yeah. Um, because it's so deep. It, it's it's like if you think of it as like an iceberg, hiring is like the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. There's so much that went on underneath all of that um, in terms of like, boy, like like I mentioned before, exposure. Um, and even when you're exposed, it's like, do I see myself in that role? Do you even have the opportunity to go to college? Like it's a whole, it's a whole thing. And so by the time you get to the hiring process, there is only so much you can do, but I think what companies are trying to do, and I think that they should, because I think it, it's better for them as well, is they're trying to figure out ways to mitigate all that damage. Um, in terms of has it changed, it depends on how you would qualify that term because I feel like there's more diversity in tech now than perhaps 10 years ago, but it's like to what degree though? Like what mm. roles are these? Are we talking about 
you know, we have more Latinos in HR, you know, more sure. companies are we talking about, um, you know, we have more African-Americans in leadership roles, you know, the very different versions of, of diversity. So I think there has been some progress. And unfortunately, I think some of it has regressed as a result of the layoffs recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's real. It's really hard to say, like, has there been progress? Sure. Um, but there's obviously a lot there's a long way to go and i think there has to be a lot of focus on everything below the surface of the water if you will mm. iceberg we need to focus on i mean public schools are like trash you know like wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm being hyperbolic but take, take that the state of ohio <laughs> she's coming after you <laughs> i'm being hyperbolic here but you know obviously we we have an education issue in the states, um, so it's it's a it's a it's a long it's a long rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like it's something like you said. Has it changed? Yeah, maybe, but there's still a lot of a long way to go. And it's like if you think about it, like when we were kids, the STEM was not a thing. Right. right. It, was, it wasn't like, oh, we need to get more, you know, uh, diversity and and science and tech and engineering and math. It was like that that STEM acronym didn't even that that wasn't around, right? And so you figure right. like, how long is it? I don't know how long it's been around. Uh, Ten years, maybe. I don't know. Fifteen mm. years. How long has it been but, in the in the in the public uh, right. sort of right? Like, you know, Conscious, that yeah. we all know what STEM means. You don't have to explain yeah. the acronym, you know. Right, yeah. but but the the idea that like. When we, when, when our our society started caring about exposing minority groups to the sciences and math, and, mm. and when it became less acceptable to discourage women from going into math uh, areas, like those kids who were the very first cohort of kids who were like being encouraged, the, the mm. very first cohort of of girls who were being encouraged to go into math and science, mm. how old are they now? Right, like we still have like you know a lot of 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 years to kind of catch up from, yeah. from all that focus on on stem and diversification right um, absolutely so it's like it's it's a slow moving ship it's going to take a long time to turn but that doesn't mean we can't try to steer it a little bit harder absolutely and something i'd also like to add is that you know there's there's different versions of diversity you know ethnic gender national all that great stuff um but i would even argue when it comes to being more diverse to folks from like rural Alabama or something like mm. we probably haven't progressed much there either. You know, I don't yeah. know the statistics, but I would imagine that the folks that we traditionally see in tech, perhaps, you know, wider Asian men who maybe had a dad who worked in this and their grandfather worked in this, that's not the same as someone from like rural Kentucky. Like it's not the same. So I think that it's not even just the like, oh, we need more people who are like brown or whatever. It's like, are are we tapping into the talent here, you know, in the United States? I don't know if that's certain. Um, but like I said, it's there's so much working against each other. Our politics are super um polarized, and so it's 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 hard. It's hard to what do you think organizations though can be can be doing here and, and and i bring that up through the lens of 
it's it's too it's almost too late at the point of of, of the interview right because i'll get mm-hmm. a number of I'll see, you know, there'll be 20 resumes come through and I try and be one of those uh, managers that doesn't even look at the name. So there's no like yeah. inference that I can draw from it, uh, you know, um, yeah. but it, it's also um, at that moment in time, if you actually go and look at it, I would say right now, probably, you know, you go, yeah, 80% of these are men. Uh, and of that, you know, like at least three quarters of that group are going to be uh, white, white or Asian men. Yeah. Um, and, and so what you end up with is a pool of these really well-qualified candidates, they don't yeah. have to be very homogenous. And so yeah. the question then becomes, well, what can organizations do to disrupt that a little bit and to be more mindful of this in that hiring process? Boy. And I'm not asking you to solve the world's problems. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm, I'm just trying to brainstorm around on this too. Because, you know, because I, I, I think about like when I go and speak at like universities, I try and pick like state schools and, yeah. uh, you know, I went to a state school myself and like right. went to community college myself and I try and take those types of routes to, yeah. to find folks who maybe haven't, they've never met an actuary. I'm not an actuary, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, they've never met someone who does anything to do with analytics and that yeah. becomes that moment, that opportunity. Um, but you know, that's just me on my own and you know, yeah, think, yeah. People, you know, at, think global, act local, but organizations have a role to play here too, right? So yeah. how can a how can a hiring manager who's in the measurement space go and speak with their HR team about how they would want to see, you know, more more diverse candidates come through? That is um that is like a million dollar question yeah. because so this this kind of almost taps into the affirmative action space mm. a little bit, which we've seen as had a huge shuffle um, yes. recently, at least in academia. But I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up expanding into like the commercial world, for instance. Um, and there are different versions of what people consider "quote unquote" fair. Like, should I only be looking at people from this school if I know the proportion of people there are a certain race, or should I go out of my way? It's it's almost more of a philosophical question at this point because not everyone agrees on that. Yeah. Um, from my perspective, I say, why not reach out to folks who otherwise wouldn't have access? Like, why not? You know, you might be tapping into talent that you otherwise wouldn't have access to. Um, but the challenge is that you also obviously don't, it's hard to like try to diversify things without paying attention to things like race and gender. And it's like, so is that, is that good? Is this just a means to an end because of where we are? It is so hard, dude. I honestly don't have an answer. Yeah. And I think you tapped into something right there. Right. And that I think is the, the first step to, toward this is being mindful. And in my experience, when I've had teams that, um, uh, uh, more um, swayed to one specific gender or one specific race, there is a much larger homogeneity of thought and mm-hmm. you do not see that same degree of creativity. And therefore it is an advantage to the business for you to be thinking critically about who makes up this team. And this is true in, in both directions. Um, you know, even in, in a prior life, I was the only male on a team. This was not a measurement team, but I was the only male in, the, in that group. And we would, we would talk about marketing uh, uh, all kinds of products. And I was like, we all it, th- we we're talking about very female thought uh, processes yeah, here, right? Yeah. Like like uh-huh. we're all thinking about like no one's and you really do need someone from a you know representative backgrounds to think critically about no like this this is not my experience at all and that's what yeah. we're talking about the creativity of measurement. 
I think that's the most important part is thinking about the diversity of the group that's discussing the challenge at hand and making sure that you don't just have homogenous thought. So I think it's a great point you made. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to a certain point, you can kind of put all of the the legal, moral, ethical questions aside and say, no, this is giving us a business advantage. We We want to have diversity on our team because we know that's going to make our, our product or our service better. And so we're going to actively try to do that through you know, having our recruiters uh, not go through the typical channels and, and try to make an effort to uh, go for you know, uh, a, a, a diverse set of candidates. Um, yeah, it's, it's more about like, and there's pl- plenty of research that shows diverse teams perform better. Right, um, exactly. So- um, and it's, it's also interesting because I feel like you know, companies do have like these outreach programs. I know Microsoft has like a host of them. Um, I, I I wonder how successful they are. I'm not sitting around reading the statistics on it, but it seems to me like it it has some impact because a lot of the folks that I've mentored at work are a result of those programs and many of them end up getting hired. So it's hard to say how impactful they are, but I, I do see some companies at least making a an effort to try to reach out to different communities that otherwise wouldn't have access. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I I see we're we're getting close to the end here. The clock is ticking away. <laughs> and you know what that means? That means we are at the point of the incremental insight. Hooray! <laughs> this is uh, the part of the podcast where we ask our guests to share one thing, one takeaway that our guests can uh, get some value out of. They can maybe, uh, it's a blog post they can go read or a, a podcast to listen to or some very specific tip that they can go put into place right now. So Leandra, do you have an incremental insight for us? I do. Um, and it really boils down to the power, what I call the power of asking um, I, I feel like it has really benefited my career and I think it would benefit other folks to not go about your career very passively. And if you're curious about something, seriously, just ask, like, no one's gonna, like, no one's gonna say that you're stupid or something, or at least they shouldn't, but in nine times out of 10, they don't. Um, and a lot of people are flattered actually, when you ask them questions, you want to hear their opinion. I've, I've gotten so many opportunities simply from asking a question. One of them I talked about earlier was asking like, well, how does, how does insurance work? You know, simply asking that question. Um, I remember I can give you two more examples that are actually pretty outstanding and they don't necessarily relate to measurement, but, um, I actually wanted, this is when I was still interested in working on the creative side of entertainment. Um, I wanted to intern for Hans Zimmer because I love his music. Everyone loves his, his pieces. And so I was literally like, where does Hans Zimmer work? And so I just Googled it (laughs) (laughs) and I ended up finding a random phone number and I called it and I literally ended up interning for Hans Zimmer for a semester. Yeah. Just because I was curious, you know, and a lot of my friends bring that up as like, wow, you really literally just asked. <laughs> um, and another one was, um, I was in France for part of my graduate program at CMU actually. And, um, one of my favorite hip hop groups is a French group called Montage. 
and they happened to be in town at the time. And I literally tweeted them and I was like, hey, this is like probably never going to happen, but can I come see you guys' show? And they literally tweeted back at me. I ended up going seeing them and I hung out with them like in VIP. Like, what? Just asking. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh. So just ask. You'd be surprised what you can get for just asking. I think um, also that relates to, you know, wage when you're in a, when you're yeah. in wage. A lot of folks think that it's going to like, it's going to end up in a rejection or something. I really find that to be the case. The worst you'll get is a no. Um, so just ask. And the last thing that I'll, I'll add, there is a speech that was recommended to me um, by actually a researcher at Microsoft. I read it and I fell in love with it. I was like, all right, everybody needs to read this. So I always recommend it to folks. It's called You and Your Research. Um, and it's by Richard Hamming who is a mathematician. And um, while it talks about research, what he talks about is very applicable to everyday life in terms of what makes something that one does exceptional. And I think that kind of bleeds into the ask thing because sometimes when we don't ask questions, we settle for mm -hmm. our situation. But if you ask questions or if you're curious and you act on that, sometimes you end up doing exceptional things. And I wouldn't be anywhere where I am now if I didn't just ask folks like for their opinion on stuff. So that's what I will leave folks with. I love that advice. Absolutely. And if any of our listeners want to ask you a question, where should they find you and reach out to you on? Oh, yeah. They can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm super open to adding folks I don't know. Um, so, yeah, just hit me up on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your your expertise with us and hopefully, you know, helping our, our listeners land that first or next data science job. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Um, I'm really passionate about folks getting into it, no matter who you are, where you're from. So it was an honor being here. And when is your book coming out? Do, do, do you have a date yet? I don't have a date yet, but it's early 2024 for sure. Alrighty. All righty. All right. Yeah. Well, let's let us, let us know what like happens. Not, yeah. We'll mention on the far, pod. So. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Very soon. Awesome. All right. Well, Simon, what do you do when your life has you down? Uh, when life's got you down, it's time to measure up. All right. Talk to you next time. Well, my friend, you've made it to the end of the show, which means you either found it so riveting you couldn't turn it off, or you're out for a jog and you can't easily hit the skip button on your phone. Either way, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would find it helpful. And please, as a personal favor to me, go to iTunes or wherever you listen to this and leave a rating and review. That helps others find us, but more importantly, shows that you're a thought leader who cares about your craft and wants others to join this tribe. 